You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let us open our Bibles together this afternoon. We turn to Psalm 57. And you will recognize that Psalm 57 is not exactly the most popular or well-known psalm in the Psalter. But yet it's, again, a psalm that speaks about the mercy, the goodness, and the grace of our God. For the director of music, to the tune of Do Not Destroy of David and Mictam when he had fled from Saul into the cave. There you have the superscription. And then follows the words of the psalm, Have mercy on me, O God, have mercy on me, for in you my soul takes refuge. I will take refuge in the shadow of your wings until the disaster has passed. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He sends from heaven and saves me, rebuking those who hotly pursue me. God sends his love and his faithfulness. I am in the midst of lions. I lie among ravenous beasts, men whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. They spread a net for my feet. I was bowed down in distress. They dug a pit in my path, but they have fallen into it themselves. My heart is steadfast, O God, my heart is steadfast. I will sing and make music. Awake, my soul, awake, harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations. I will sing of you among the peoples. For great is your love, reaching to the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. I preach to you this afternoon from the word of our God, as you can find it in Lord's Day 21. Question and answer 56 of the Heidelberg Catechism. What do you believe concerning the forgiveness of sins? I believe that God, because of Christ's satisfaction, will no more remember my sins nor my sinful nature against which I have to struggle all my life, but will graciously grant me the righteousness of Christ that I may never come into condemnation. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, the Christian faith is populated with many words, small words and big words, easy words and difficult words. And some of those words apply particularly to God the Father, I think, of love, mercy, grace, and truth. Some of those words like joy, peace, patience, and goodness and self-control, we identify with the Holy Spirit, and some of those words like salvation, satisfaction, resurrection, intercession, we link up with Christ Jesus, our Savior and our Lord. And as I mentioned, some of these words may also be difficult words like justification, sanctification, or propitiation. And some of the words of the Christian vocabulary are also controversial, words like election, reprobation, damnation. And then there are some words that are hard for us to get our minds around, namely, for example, immutability or omniscience or omnipresence and so forth. 
In short, beloved, the Christian faith has many words. It has quite a vocabulary. And then, of course, I realize that there are any number of people who have little use for these words. Even some Christians don't prize them all that highly. What they would much rather see stressed is that Christianity is a religion of action and not so much of words or of terminology. They are much more into the world of deeds than of thought. They prefer a faith that stresses application and really doesn't spend a lot of time on contemplation, much less debate. But nevertheless, beloved, no matter how hard we may try, we cannot as Christians get around the fact that our faith does have a certain vocabulary, a certain deposit of words that we need to deal with. And I don't really think we should try to get around these words either. Rather, we should maybe do a little bit of extra work, a little hard work to get to know them, to explore them, to discuss them, and to apply them as best as we can. Yes, and one more thing that I might add about all of these Christian words is that so many of them are words that are meant to be savored as well as enjoyed. Yes, and that surely also goes for the word that we are called upon to deal with this afternoon. We've come to Lord's Day 21, question and answer 56, and that means that we've come to the great biblical word, forgiveness. Here is a word that points us to one of the glorious treasures of the gospel. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. Let's stop and consider that particular word this afternoon. I preached to you on the theme, forgiven. We'll look at a humbling admission, a painful struggle, and a gracious gift. Well, beloved, last time, last Sunday in the afternoon service, or maybe it was the Sunday before, we dealt with answer question and answer 55, which spoke about the communion or the fellowship of the saints. And there we stress the fact, or the catechism stressed the fact, that we have fellowship with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, but we also, of course, have fellowship with one another. But more than anything else, I think the emphasis was on the fact that as believers we have communion, we have fellowship with Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. Scripture loves to talk about the fact that we are in Christ. We are in him in terms of faith, in terms of all manner of gifts and blessings. And so the catechism puts it like this, that we share in Christ and in all of his treasures and gifts. But of course, that raises the question, what kind of treasures and gifts are we referring to? Could the creed not have been perhaps a bit more specific and itemize them one after the other? Well, indeed it could and it does. For look, after question and answer 55, which talks about the communion and the gifts of the communion, we come to 56, which deals with the forgiveness of sins. And so you could say the, the Apostles' Creed is saying that one of the great 
blessings of the communion of the saints is that we together may enjoy the forgiveness of all of our sins through Jesus Christ. That's one of our greatest treasures and gifts. But of course the question then arises, do we still understand this? Do we still appreciate this? I ask these questions because gifts and treasures are often rather tricky things. What you might consider to be a real gift, someone else might not. What you might consider to be a great treasure, someone else might very well shrug their shoulders at. You know how it goes, right? For example, your your wife goes into one of these second-hand stores, and before long she comes out, and she's got this particular look in her eyes, so you know she's found something. And then she comes to you, and she tells you what she's found in that second-hand store, and she expects you to be all excited, as excited as she is. And it's hard to stifle a yawn. Or as a man, you go and you look around in a car lot and you find this particular car. You think it's a real gem of a car. And you talk about it with your wife and your wife looks at you as if to say, what's so great about a hunk of sheet metal? You see, the result is that one man's treasure is someone else's junk. One person's delight is another person's waste of time, money, and energy. And why is that? Well, because we all place, or we do not all place, the same amount of value on the same things. We do not all have the same interests, the same inclinations, the same pursuits, the same desires. We differ as people in so many ways and so many things. And our reactions differ as well. But you know, beloved, when it comes to the gift that we are looking at together here this afternoon. There actually should be none of this. For this is a gift that we all should get excited about. And why? Well, because we should all be able to identify this. We should all be able to say, we need this. We all need forgiveness. We all need it desperately. This is not just for one person. It's for all people. We all need it. And why do we need it? Well, two reasons. The first has to do with the fact that we are all sinful. And we all sin. And the second reason attached to that is the fact that we all have sinful natures. In other words, beloved, all of us suffer from exactly same disease. We all have precisely the same sickness. And we all need the same cure. But what is that sickness? Well, the catechism calls it sins. What is sins? Maybe it struck you as well that that word sin or sins in the plural is a word that that has almost totally vanished from our modern vocabulary or terms of usage? When was the last time that you heard, for example, a television news broadcaster on CBC or CTV or wherever you have it talk about sin? 
When was the last time that you read in your Vancouver Sun or in your Langley Times the use of the word sin? It's hardly ever used anymore. It's a term that rarely, if ever, comes up at all. So the result is not only is it virtually becoming unknown, but also its meaning is becoming virtually unknown, even in some churches. Not so long ago, a well-known televangelist fired his son as his successor because his son paid far too much attention to sin and the consequences of sin. And so sin, beloved, has almost vanished. And that means that our understanding of our most basic and fundamental problem in life has vanished with it. Our world is falling apart. And if you ask people, what's the problem in our world? They give you that dumb stare. Or that curious look. They don't know. Why do we have so many murders? So many sexual assaults? So much theft? So much lawlessness? So much immorality? Why do we have so much violence in our world? Why do we need to send all those men to sacrifice their lives and women to Afghanistan? Why does all, all of that have to happen? People don't know. And that's not the only problem. There's a deeper one as well. For not only are people today ignorant when it comes to sin, but they are just, if not more, ignorant about God and about the Word of God. If people knew God, they would know sin. If they would know the Word of God, they would know something about sin. For what is sin? Well, you may know that Scripture uses many, many words to describe sin. But taken only as a single word, it's a word that describes man's violation and man's transgression of the holy will of God. It points to the fact that man is at loggerheads with the most powerful, the most holy, the most exalted being in all the universe. The great God of heaven and earth says one thing and we do another thing. Man doesn't listen to him, doesn't obey him, doesn't respect him. Why, in a way, it's even incomprehensible. Imagine that we were still living in the days of great kings and the rulers of this world. Could you picture yourself receiving an order from Caesar Augustus or from Attila the Hun or from Napoleon or William the Conqueror and then telling them to stuff it? Would you dare? Of course not. You would receive that order with trembling and you'd go and do it quickly. 
But yet here we're dealing with the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, the Supreme Ruler and Almighty God. Here we are dealing with the one who can crush the Hitlers and the Stalins of this world like ants. He comes to us with his law, with his will. And what happens? We rebel. We revolt. We stick our noses up in the air and walk the other way. We treat him with utter contempt. You shall have no other gods before me. (laughs) Since when? You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Why not? You shall honor your father and your mother. You've got to be kidding. You shall not commit adultery. Go away. Everybody does that. You shall not covet. Why ever not? It's fun. What man would never dream of doing or saying to a human ruler, he says and he does to God. And what man would never dare to do with a human command, he does with divine ones all the time. Yes, and that's not just something that happens once in a blue moon either. It's not merely a temporary kind of forgetfulness or a slight straying from the straight and the narrow. No, this is what man does repeatedly, constantly, and even consciously. That's why the catechism refers, according to the scriptures, not just to sins, but to man's sinful nature. And you know what that means? It means that this problem that man has cannot be compared to like a pimple on your face. Now, this is a disease that's infiltrated every part of our body, our mind, our heart, our soul, our will. All have been infected and affected. Man suffers from a radical problem. You know, in part, our forefathers called this radical problem original sin. And they called it original sin partly because they looked deeper and farther and wider for its root and its cause. If you turn, for example, to the Belgian Confession, Article 15, you'll come across one of the clearest descriptions of this this sin. For there we are told it's a corruption of the entire nature of man, a hereditary evil which infects even infants in their mother's womb. As a root, it produces in man all sorts of sins. It's not abolished nor eradicated even by baptism. For sin continually streams forth like water welling up from this woeful source. That's the confession's way of saying, according to the scriptures, that sin is something that's part of the very woofen nature of our life and of our being today. Our fallen nature is like a loaded sinking oil tanker or like a certain BP oil well spilling forth all manner of moral pollution and filth. It contaminates everything. And maybe now you begin to understand a little of our human problem. 
You now see what sin is and what damage sin does. If you thought that the biggest challenges on this planet have to do with Afghanistan or the environment or the economy or with moral decline or limited resources, you may, in a sense, be technically correct. But you know, behind all of those problems and more, there is something more basic and fundamental of all. And that's sin. Man is at war with his creator. And it's from that source, that conflict, that all the miseries flow. That's the great and the humbling admission that we need to come to before forgiveness can ever be received, appreciated, or applauded. And that's not easy, beloved. For even if we do admit that sin is man's basic problem, and even if we do acknowledge that there is a corruption in our very nature, we still haven't seen it all. For so there's something else that we need to be aware of. It's the fact that sin is not easy to get rid of, and there's also the fact that our sinful natures are not easy to change. The Catechism puts it rather correctly and bleakly when it says, against which I have to struggle all my life. You may wonder, is that true? Is that what the Bible teaches? Is the reality of sin something that I'm always going to be butting my head against all the days of my life? Well, the Catechism affirms what the Scripture says. You may know, if you look at the Catechism, it points to Romans chapter 7, the verses 21 to 25. And, and there we hear the Apostle Paul say, I see another law at work in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Now those are famous words, notorious words of the Apostle Paul. And they're probably notorious because all of the different interpretations that have been attached to them. Some, some insist that this wretched man that, that Paul speaks about isn't Paul at all. Or others say, no, that was the Apostle Paul before he was converted. That's in the past. And then there are those who disagree and say, no, that's the Apostle Paul even as a believer. Well, beloved, what is it? I would say the Apostle Paul is here summing up a certain situation. And he's describing something that is with him and with us as long as we continue on in this life. And what is it? It's the fact that while on the one hand believers want to serve God and to do his will perfectly, they want to serve his will with their minds, as it were, Paul says. But on the other hand, there is this grim reality that with our flesh, we serve the law and we gravitate toward the law of sin. 
We're never able to keep God's will perfectly, fully, consistently. So what do we have here? We have an admission that in this life, we'll always have to struggle against our sinful nature. We have an admission that we're not going to reach the goal of perfection here below. We're not going to achieve and come to that day when we finally say, ah, perfect at last. I finally, finally made it. Well, then I know, of course, there are people who disagree with that. You can find in your church history books a number of people, any number, who believe that they achieve perfection for themselves in this life. But you know what? Most of them are members of cults and sects. And none of them are called Adam, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Aaron, David, Solomon, Elijah, Job, Paul, Peter, John. Isn't it striking? The Bible never attributes perfection to any of its main characters. Nor do they attribute perfection to themselves. No matter how holy, pious, and dedicated they may be. Only our Lord Jesus Christ is described in terms of perfection And only the work of Jesus Christ is declared to be a perfect work. So, beloved, the the sad reality is that we sin. We have a sinful nature. And that all the days of our life, we're involved in a great struggle. Rather... uh, Depressing picture, right? Kind of a sad, sad state of affairs. Kind of a hopeless situation. But thankfully it's not the end of the story. For praise be to God, God steps into this world of our sin, our rebellion, and and he gives us a gift, a, a wonderful gift, a most precious gift indeed, and the gift is called forgiveness. And what kind of a gift is it? Well, if you look at it, first of all, if you look at it biblically, it's an ancient gift. The Bible says that almost no sooner did man fall and rebel against God. And there was an answer for sin. True, at first it was but a dim answer. But as the ages went by, it begins to shine brighter and brighter. Ancient men like Noah and Abraham, Isaac and Jacob understood already that there was forgiveness with God. That somehow it was depicted in all of those animals that they were regularly sacrificing. So this is something old. But it's also something that that restores and and rebuilds. If you look, for example, at Psalm 32, it describes what, what happens when people ignore sin and they stick their heads in the sand and they dismiss it. 
The psalmist says, when you ignore this rottenness in your heart, then your bones get wasted and then the groans and the moans can be heard all day long. Then then guilt is draped like a wet, heavy blanket on your soul and your strength slowly ebbs away. But then suddenly something happens. Sin is confessed to God, it's acknowledged, it's admitted. Man no longer participates in the great cover-up or in the great ignorance. He bears his soul to God. And the result, God forgives. The burden is lifted. Prayers can be uttered. Songs of deliverance resound. Music is in the air. Forgiveness, you see, is like music and medicine. It heals, it restores, it strengthens, it renews. And even more than that, forgiveness is a gift that also cleanses. You catch some of that in Psalm 32. You catch a lot more of that in Psalm 51. There, there David reflects publicly on his sin with Bathsheba. And as he reflects upon his sin with Bathsheba, he acknowledges that he is polluted through and through. That sin hems him in on, on, on every side. That even before his birth, he says, it had already gained a foothold. And he complains about being unclean, stained with transgressions, polluted with iniquity. He longs, as it were, to be sanitized. Wash away my iniquity and cleanse me from all my sin. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Create in me a pure heart. Oh God. For all those things David prays. And all of those things forgiveness does. It comes to David and it makes him clean again. It makes him whole once more. It restores the joy of salvation to his life. Forgiveness does that for him and for all who receive it. And so, beloved, it's old, it restores, it cleanses, and also something else, it liberates. We don't seem to realize that, but a people living in rebellion under the great king also live under the sentence of death. We all deserve it. You know, the Catechism talks about it in 56. I may never come into condemnation. By nature, we are people under God's condemnation. But what does forgiveness do? Forgiveness removes that burden, that sentence. We are no longer on death's row. We're no longer the objects of divine wrath. We're free at last. Liberated indeed.
And so, beloved, God's forgiveness produces one great liberating blessing after another. But then if we're to enjoy these blessings, let's also not forget one final thing, and that is that all of this, all of this counteraction that God does to our sin is a mediated gift. What does that mean to say it's a mediated gift? Well, that means that it doesn't come purely and solely from us and from ourselves, but rather it comes to us from someone else. It comes to us thanks to his labors, thanks to his achievements, thanks to his life. And what do I mean? Well, listen to the words of Romans 8, 1 and 2. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit set me free from the law of sin and death. See, here's the key. Here's the Apostle Paul saying, how is it possible to be sinful, have a sinful nature, struggling against sin, and yet forgiven? And no longer condemned. The only reason, the only answer is in Christ. Christ Jesus sets us free. And you'll notice the catechism points us to the satisfaction and righteousness of Jesus Christ. In other words, it's saying Christ Jesus is the one who pays the price for all my sins. He's the one who took my sinful nature and who nailed it to the cross. He is the one who lives a life of perfect holiness and righteousness and who freely gives me from the treasury of his gifts and benefits. Beloved, do you see what a great gift this is? I am forgiven. That's a confession you can only make if you're truly, truly in Christ. And if you're in Him, you should say it slowly. You should say it daily. You should say it confidently. And you should say it with a shout. I am forgiven. My sins will condemn me no more. I may still do them. I may not be totally free from them. But I know that because of the great work of Jesus Christ, God will not allow them to testify against me on the great day of days. I am forgiven. And one day I will not only be forgiven, I will be free. We have all sinned. Of all stain, of all spot, free of a sinful nature, the struggle will be over and the victory will be won. Thanks be to Jesus Christ for his incomparable gift. Forgiveness, beloved, understand it. And savor it every day. Amen.
This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.